Wow, great songs. You know, the, the title of the message is Christ's Call to Reform the Church. But I want to add one thing to what Steve said last week about Christ coming in the fullness of time. You know, it's always on God's timeline. And over there on the side, if you want to pick it up, is a timeline of the Bible. And Christ was born, if you follow the timeline in the Bible, 4,000 years from the date of creation on God's timeline, exactly 4,000 years. I thought that was an interesting when you look at the Bible timeline. So I just wanted to add that. But Christ's call to reform the church. You know, we, we just uh, celebrated the 503rd anniversary of the Reformation on October 31st, uh, 1517. And uh, I thought it was, would be appropriate as we find the times that we're in and we tra- transition from one year to the next that we focus on what Christ has to say about reforming the church. In the book of Revelation, Jesus wrote seven letters to cities in Asia Minor. But he didn't write them to City Hall. Who did he write them to? The churches. Let that sink in for a moment. He wrote his final letters that he had in the last book of his revelation, in the book of Revelation, letters to the church. He did not set his church on a mission to redeem the culture. He didn't advise his people to leverage political power, to institute morality, or to protest the rule of immoral man. In fact, he didn't launch a civil revolution or devise a political strategy of any kind. The church today, and particularly the church in America, needs to understand that God has not called his people out of the world simply to wage a cultural war with the world. We're not meant to gain temporal ground like some invading force working to superficially turn this country back to God. We need to shed the illusion that our ancestors' morality, which was good, once made America a Christian nation. There has never been a Christian nation, just Christians. Believers need to understand that what happens in America politically and socially has nothing to do with the progress of the power of the kingdom of God. Cultural change can't accelerate the kingdom's growth, nor can it hinder it. Christ was emphatic in Matthew 16, 1, when he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And Christ proclaimed in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. Let us remind ourselves what Paul said in Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law Indeed, it cannot. Morality on its own is no solution. It damns just like immorality. Morality cannot turn the stony heart to flesh. It cannot break the chains of sin, and it cannot reconcile us to God. In that sense, morality alone is an 
is as empty to save as any satanic religion. Jesus went head to head with the most religious and outwardly moral people in the world, particularly the priests, the scribes, and the experts in the Old Testament law. And he said, I do not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners in Mark 2.17. In Matthew 23, he unleashed his most searing accusations against the religious right of his day, the party of the Pharisees. They were the most pious men in the nation who fastidiously kept the law of God and faithfully followed all the rabbinical traditions. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, in verse 13. The word woe is equivalent to saying, curse you. He's pronouncing damnation and judgment on them. He repeats the same phrases over and over in subsequent verses, and he calls them blind guides down in verse 16 as they led Israel astray with their empty, pious morality. The will of God is not that we become so politicized that we turn our mission field into our enemy. Christians are right to repudiate sin and to declare without equivocation that sin is an offense to our holy God. A culture, though, sold out to such as abortion and now in some states infanticide, homosexuality, sexual promiscuity is not going to be turned around, much less won over by angry protest and partisan politics. It's futile to think the solution of our culture's moral bankruptcy is a legislative remedy. There is no law that can make a fallen sinner righteous. As Paul reminded us in the first epistle he wrote in Galatians 2.21, this is the first book that he wrote, the first letter. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul went on to write in his last epistle that he wrote to, Second Timothy, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.13, evil people are, an impost, are imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And when you stop and think about it, it is easy to deceive someone, but it's harder to convince them they've been deceived. What the people of this depraved world need is the gospel. We ought to make sure that the lost sinners in our lives know that we love them enough to offer them God's forgiveness. There is a holy hatred for sin, but even Christ could weep over the lost in sympathy. So must we. The world is the way it is today because it is the world. And the church must confront it with the full truth. It's time for the church to be about the ministry of reconciliation, to faithfully proclaim his gospel, and to be the salt and the light in this dark and desperate world. That was the Lord's messages to the churches in Revelation. He commanded them to put off worldliness and corruption, to renew their love for him, and to guard the purity of his gospel and his church. It's time for us to pay attention to those letters, to those churches in Revelation, and heed Christ's call to reform his church. Have you ever heard 
of a church that repented? Not individuals, but his entire church genuinely repent. Sadly, probably most of us have not. For that matter, have you ever heard of a pastor who called his church to repent and threaten his congregation with divine judgment? The fact is, churches rarely repent. In reality, calling the church to repent and reform can be very dangerous. Church history is replete with examples. The song that we just sang, A Firm Foundation, was introduced by John Rippon during the English Reformation in the time of the Puritans. And when you think about those words and the persecution they were going through, those words have more meaning than ever. The name Puritan was devised as a term of derision and scorn. It was applied to a group of Anglican pastors in England in the 16th and 17th centuries who sought to purify the church of its remaining Roman Catholic influences and practices. In fact, today, if you go to an Anglican service, you can't tell it apart from a Roman Catholic service. They are so similar. These Puritan pastors repeatedly called for the churches of England to repent for their extensive carnality, heresy, and priestly corruption. The Anglican hierarchy was determined to silence their voices. For decades, the Puritans faced hostility and persecution. The church would not be reformed. Many suffered and died for their faith, while many who endured imprisonment and torture for the sake of Christ. I've seen the gravesite of John Rippon in in London, buried with another 120,000 plus Puritans, John Owen is buried there. Isaac Watts is buried there who wrote Joy to the World and the Wondrous Cross. When the persecution reached its peak in 1662, when the English Parliament issued what was known as the Act of Uniformity, notice it was the Parliament that made this. It was a nation church. It was the church state. The decree essentially outlawed anything other than strict Anglican doctrine and practice. That led to monumental tragic day in England's spiritual history, August 24, 1662, commonly known as the Great Ejection. On that day, 2,000 Puritans, pastors were stripped of their ordination and permanently thrown out of the Anglican churches. The Great Ejection was a spiritual disaster that serves as a clear and dark dividing line in England's history that has implications even to the present day. Ian Murray, a famous biographer, describes the spiritual fallout of that dark day. After the silencing of the 2000, we entered an age of rationalism, of coldness in the pulpit, and indifference in the pew, an age in which skepticism and worldliness went far to reducing the national religion to a mere parody of New Testament Christianity. J.B. Martin, Martin, who wrote extensively on this, saw the event as an invitation for the Lord's judgment. In 1665, just three years later, the bubonic plague struck London, killing more than 100,000 people, about one-fourth of the population. The following year, a massive fire swept through London, incinerating more than 13,000 homes. 
nearly 100 churches, including St. Paul's Cathedral, and decimating most of that city. Talk about spiritual coldness. You go to St. Paul's Cathedral today, that can seat probably 20,000 people. You'll be lucky that there's 200 there on any given Sunday. Still, those disasters don't compare to the spiritual consequences of England's apostasy. After citing the plague and the fire, Martin continued, other calamities ensued, more lasting and far more terrible. Religion in the Church of England was almost extinguished, and in many of her parishes, the lamp of God went out. But the Church of England failed to achieve its primary goal. The Puritans were scattered, but not silenced. And neither can we. Many of the men who were ejected from the churches went on to have influence that continues to this day. Spiritual stalwarts such as Richard Baxter, John Flavel, Thomas Brooke, Thomas Watson, John Owen, faithfully carried out as outlaw preachers. Along with many others, they continue to expose the corruption of the Anglican church, calling for its repentance. In that sense, they carried on the legacy that began with the reformers more than a century earlier. In medieval Europe, the Roman Catholic Church had a stranglehold on all matters pertaining to spiritual life. In an era when Bibles were rare and inaccessible, printing press hadn't been invented yet, handwritten copies, big, big ones like that Latin Vulgate over there, the first one, was the only Bibles available. So Rome established itself as the gatekeeper, controlling access to Scripture and thus to God. The priests granted forgiveness, bestowed blessing, and served as the arbiters of eternal reward. To its core, medieval Roman Catholic Church was a breeding ground for heresy and spiritual deception. In the 1490s, Thomas Lineker, an Oxford professor and personal physician of King Henry VII and VIII, went to Italy to learn Greek from Greeks in a Greek refugee camp. And the reason there were refugees in a Greek refugee camp in Italy was the Muslims had just taken over Constantinople. And the Greek Orthodox refugees were migrating to Western Europe. And what they brought with them broke the stranglehold of what the Roman Catholic Church had. The Latin Vulgate was the only Bible allowed. They brought Greek manuscripts with them. Thomas Lineker learned Greek, and he read, after reading the gospel in Greek and comparing it to the Latin Vulgate, he wrote in his diary, either this, the original Greek, is not the gospel, or we are not Christians. The Latin had become so corrupt that it no longer preserved the message of the gospel. Remember last week, John, uh, Steve was te teaching us in Genesis 3.15, he will bruise his head, well, in the Latin Vulgate, it says she. In, in the New Testament, when Christ says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, it says do penance. And it says do penance everywhere else in the New Testament instead of repent. So that gives you an idea of how corrupt the Latin Vulgate had become. And fortunately, the Greek had infiltrated Europe, and now we were seeing the true word of God. The Lord used many men like John Wycliffe, who wrote the first English Bible. 
and John Huss, who carried out Wycliffe's teachings in Central Europe, to reject and repudiate its extra-biblical, corrupt Catholic dogma. Like the Puritans centuries later in England, these men did not seek to overthrow the church, but hoped to call it to repentance and help restore it to biblical orthodoxy. And for those efforts, both men were excommunicated and burned as heretics. Wycliffe was retroactively excommunicated 44 years after his death. His body was exhumed, incinerated, and his bones crushed, and ashes were scattered in the River Swift. John Huss was burned at the stake in 1415 with Wycliffe's manuscripts of the Bible, because this is still before the printing press, so they're all handwritten, as kindling for the fire. The last words of John Huss were, in 100 years, God will raise up a man whose call to reform cannot be suppressed. Almost exactly 100 years later, October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed those famous 95 theses on the church door at Wittenberg. The prophecy of Huss had come true. Luther, not yet converted, argued against the sale of indulgences. Indulgences were the way the church financed itself. There was a book, 60 pages long, and it was really the tax structure of the church. You could pay for forgiveness for anything that you did. That's how the church raised its money. But they came up with new ways to buy their ways out of penance and purgatory, among other things. They could also be purchased on behalf of deceived loved ones. Under Pope Leo X, the medieval church used the sale of indulgences to support the construction of structures like St. Peter's Basilica. A savvy monk named Jonathan Tetzel was one of their most successful salesmen, perfecting a masterful sales pitch to prey on the simplicity of Catholic parishioners. He would famously exhort the crowds with the promise, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, so the soul from purgatory springs. To a customer base of illiterate, superstitious peasants, what greater hope could there be? Luther was furious over Tetzel's church-sponsored extortion. His 95 Theses constituted a public repudiation of the practice and a direct result on the greed of the church. The Thesis number 86 put the blame squarely on Pope Leo himself. Why does not the Pope, whose wealth is today greater than the wealth of the richest Crassus, Build one basilica of St. Peter with his own money rather than with the money of the poor believers. Crassus was a general during the Roman Empire of Julius Caesar's time, and he was the richest man in Rome at the time. Those 95 theses ignited the Reformation, but they did not constitute its primary battleground. In fact, Luther had not yet become, come to truth faith, as I noted, and repentance at time, or of, of, of that writing. But he was saved shortly thereafter. The doctrine of justification by faith is, of course, an insurmountable argument against the sale of indulgences, so it's significant that the 95 Theses omit any mention of that doctrine. It indicates that Luther's quote-unquote tower experience when he finally understood what it meant to be justified by faith alone occurred sometime after the posting of those theses. 
Here's how Luther actually described the tower experience. The words righteous and righteousness of God struck my conscience like lightning. When I heard them, I was exceedingly terrified. This haunted Luther for years trying to understand this. If God is righteous, I thought, he must punish. But when by God's grace I pondered over the words, he through faith is righteous shall live, Romans 1.17, and the righteousness of God, Romans 3.21, I soon came to the conclusion that if we as righteous men ought to live from faith, and if the righteousness of God contributes to the salvation of all who believe, then salvation won't be our merit, but God's mercy. My spirit was thereby cheered, for by its righteousness of God, we're justified and saved through Christ. These words which had been terrifying to me now became more pleasing to me. The Holy Spirit unveiled the scriptures for me in this tower. The truth that believers are justified by faith alone became the focus of the entire Reformation debate. The principle soli fide, Latin for faith alone, is therefore known as the material principle of the Reformation. But it was the formal principle of the Reformation, sola scriptura, Latin for scripture alone, the authority and the sufficiency of scripture, that motivated Luther to write and post the 95 Thesis. His commitment to the principle was evident even in his earliest writings before his conversion. That was his hymn, the first song we sung comes from the Reformation. Martin Luther wrote, a mighty fortress is our God. And we're still singing it today in the churches. What a legacy he's left us with. Men like William Tyndale, who had the first English Bible uh, printed, John Calvin and John Knox, many of them had shared the same conviction. 500 years later, faithful men serve in the shadow of the great warriors of God and work to carry on their legacy of biblical fidelity, and gospel truth. Moreover, we carry on the protest, not merely against Rome, but against any system, church or self-styled shepherd, who deviates from the word of God in the life of church. And tragically, the 21st century church may be facing greater threats than it ever endured under Rome. If scripture does not speak with absolute, inerrant authority, the offer of justification by grace, grace through faith cannot be extended to desperate sinners. One can't argue for the sufficiency of Christ as a sacrifice for sins or his rule as the head of the church. One can't cling to the glorious truth of imputation that at the cross God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Without those truths, we have no guarantee that God's wrath has been satisfied. There can be no assurance of faith, no hope of heaven, and no confidence in the promises of God. On the other hand, doing away with the authority of Scripture or merely, merely subjugating it to the authority of men purposely paves the way for false doctrine and false teachers to infiltrate the flock of God. It invites theological confusion, elevating the words of fallible men over that of an, the inerrant word of God. It is designed to exchange the gospel of grace for a man-centered system of work righteousness instead of divine accomplishment. 
and it pollutes the purity of God's truth, clouding biblical doctrine with superstition, tradition, extra-biblical revelation, and demonic deception. That's a broad way to summarize the various deviations that have dominated the Roman Catholic Church since the time before Luther. But it's also fitting description of the Protestant Church today. If that sounds like an overstatement, consider these questions. What's a demonstrable difference is there between Tetzel's indulgences and the holy water and anointed scraps of cloth peddled by charismatic charlatans to their vast audiences that we see on TV? What's the difference between the Pope who speaks ex cathedra, speaking for God, and a pastor who exploits his own dreams and mental impressions as a fresh revelation from God? And what separates the worship of Mary and the veneration of the saints from the way today's self-proclaimed apostles visit the graves of their forebearers to soak in the deceased anointing? Worse still, the same kinds of rampant corruption and immorality the Roman church once worked to conceal are now celebrated and encouraged by many Protestant congregations. Far from being known for their purity, many churches today go out of their way to embrace or imitate the debauchery of the secular world. Pastors exegete Hollywood movies rather than scripture. Seeker-sensitive mega churches gathering often look and feel more like a rock concert or a burlesque show than a worship service. Celebrity-minded church leaders seem more interested in what's stylish and marketable than they are in what's sound and biblically, sound, soundly biblical. Shockingly, there are even some ostensibly evangelical churches who leaders are proud that their membership is open, welcoming, uber-tolerant, or even affirming towards serial adulterers, hard-hearted fornicators, impenitent homosexuals, immortal idol, immoral idol worshipers, and even to forms of paganism. They're proud of it. I attended one church, and their motto was, you don't have to believe to belong. Another church has said, we don't teach doctrine because it divides. John MacArthur was interviewed once about a, a church that was a teaching hypocrisy and heresy, and in the title of the church was Grace. And he says, are you upset that they use grace in the name of their church? And he says, no, I'm upset they use the name church in the name of their church. Much like the Israelites in the book of Judges, the Protestant church seems determined to repeat the mistakes of its past rather than learn from them. Paul's indictment of the churches of Galatia applies to much of the evangelical church. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed and crucified, Galatians 3.1. Sadly, a national recent survey revealed that 52% of evangelical Protestants believe salvation comes by faith and works combined. Only 30% affirm sole fide and sola scriptura. The Reformation is being undone by a bewitched evangelical Protestants. The protest is largely over. Some Christians today are calling for a return to the early church model. They believe what's alien and inhibiting the work of the church today is the church structure itself. 
megachurches with sprawling campuses, legions of leaders, overgrown congregations that must endlessly be sub sub subdivided, those are supposedly the villains that have corrupted and confused the church in recent years. The argument suggests that Christians can't function in service to their full potential in a large environment. In the New Testament model of small house churches frees God's people to focus on them. What matters most? If you can, turn to Acts 2.42. We're going to look at that together. Acts 2.42. This is offered as an attempt to return to the simplicity described in Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship of breaking of bread and prayers. That's the model of the Acts 2 church that people are promoting. But go back and look at verse 41. And there was added that day about 3,000 souls. It's not a small church. 3,000 souls. That was added on top of what was already there. And then look down at verse 47. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. However, we need to only look at the New Testament to see that the life in the first century church was anything but idyllic. Small congregations, simplified organization, and proximity to the apostles did not give the early church the spiritual advantages and the insulation we might assume. We have seen it in our study of 1 Corinthians. In fact, we see many of the problems that plague the church today on display in its earliest incarnations. Put simply, the purity of the early church is overrated. And nowhere is that more apparent than the book of Revelation. Christ dictates a message to the Apostle John to the seven churches in Asia Minor. In Revelation 1.11, we read, Write in a book what you see. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Those were actual congregations located in towns throughout what we know today as Turkey. Each of these churches was founded as fruit of the apostles, of the apostles primarily Paul, with Ephesus serving as the mother church. Toward the end of his life, John ministered in the church of Ephesus, giving him an intimate connection to all those congregations. When the Lord revealed to him the revelation, however, John was in exile in a penal colony on the rock island of Patmos. It's still called Patmos. You can go to Google Maps, Google it, see what it looks like on the map. Do a satellite view, see what Patmos looks like. On the night Christ was arrested, the Lord himself had warned his disciples that persecution was coming. In John 15, 18, and 20, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It did not take long before the persecution was in full force. Rumors spread that Christians were atheists and political dissidents because they would not worship Caesar as God. It's the year A.D. 64, just 30 years after Christ's resurrection. The Roman emperor Nero played on his, these long-held suspicions to distract from his own misdeeds. That year, when a fire devastated most of the city of Rome, the, the public suspected Nero, Nero to, as to blame. 
But Nero shifted the deserved blame to the Christians, insinuating, instituting an official campaign to persecute the Christians all beyond, from the city and beyond. It continued throughout the rest of his reign. During that first wave of Roman persecution, both Peter and Paul were executed. Paul beheaded, Peter crucified upside down, along with countless others who were hunted down and slaughtered for sport. Also during Nero's reign, Rome waged a bloody war to suppress Israel's hope for independence. Nearly a thousand towns, villages, and settlements across Israel were burned to the ground with their inhabitants massacred or scattered. In AD 70, Jerusalem was overthrown and the temple destroyed, exactly on God's timeline, exactly as the Lord prophesied in Luke, that no stone will be left unturned exactly to 40 years to the day from that, his crucifixion. What was once the capital city of God's kingdom on earth was now under the control of pagans. Just over a decade later, Rome initiated another wave of persecution under the emperor Domitian. This second campaign against the church lasted longer, AD 81 to 96. Historians tell us it was during this period that Timothy was clubbed to death. Tertullian, who was born 60 years after the apostle John, claimed that the apostle John was first plunged unhurt into boiling oil. And since he couldn't be killed, thence remitted to be a prisoner forever, exiled on the island of Patmos. Now, we don't have any firsthand testimony to that effect, so we don't need to insist that that's what happened. Uh, but on the veracity of that tradition, but it does accurately reflect the ferocity or the ferocity of Rome's campaign against Christians. In Revelation 1.9, John tells us, he was sentenced to the island of prison, of Patmos, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Preaching the gospel was a crime punishable by death. From the letters dictated, letters Christ dictated to the individual churches, we know they were engaged in a variety of sinful behaviors, including sexual immorality, idolatry, and hypocrisy. They were tolerating sin and compromising the pagan culture surrounding them. They willingly accommodated false teachers and even helped spread their heresy. In many ways, they were examples that would be repeated by churches in sub subsequent ages, including evangelical churches across the Western world today. The Apostle Paul warned of the dangers facing the early church. He urged Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.8, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. In verses 13 and 14, Paul charged him, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been trusted to you. Paul knows he's not going to see Timothy again. He's writing his last letter that he ever wrote. He knew he was doomed because he was a prisoner under Nero. So this is his last breathing words that he wants Timothy to know and us to know. Paul knew persecution and suffering would also reach Timothy. 
He also knew how easy it would be to crumble and compromise when threatened with prison, torture, and death. Throughout his final epistle, he sought to prepare his young apprentice for future trials and to prepare us. He continued on in chapter 2. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Be diligent to present yourself approved uh, to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and and their talk will spread like gangrene. Flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. Paul's concern wasn't just for Timothy, but as I mentioned, for the whole church. He understood that spiritual threats loomed on the horizon for God's people. In 2 Timothy 3, he goes on, In the last day, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revivalers, revivalers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these, but evil men and apostles will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Throughout his ministry, the Apostle Paul carefully warned about the danger of succumbing to false teachers and the need to be vigilant and discerning in the face of their threat. In Romans 16, 17, he wrote, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles to the doctrines that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites by smooth talk and flattery. They deceive the hearts of the naive. But he also understood that the fight to maintain the doctrinal and moral purity of the church is not exclusively external, that plenty of threats come from within as well, within the church. Second Timothy 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I saw on TV program someone was interviewing a criminal, and he said, how did you get all these people to join you in your criminal activity?" and get them to commit these crimes. And he said, I told them what they wanted to hear. Right out of the Bible. As he prepared to leave the Ephesian church, Paul gave the elders there a vivid warning to guard the flock. God has entrusted to them. Acts 20, 29 through 31. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Not 30 years after that church had drifted from the love of Christ into empty piety, while several of the surrounding congregations has come to some 
of the very corruptions Paul had warned of. Only 30 years. By the time John had reached this point in his life, John knew very well about 2 Timothy 3.12. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He told people in his pastoral care letter, 1 John 3.13, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Before long, many of John's apostolic brothers were dead at the hands of Rome. By the time he reached Patmos in the 90s, he was the only apostle still alive. John had to wonder, seeing all this, persecutions under Nero, persecutions under Domitian that he was under, the falling away of the church. Where was the church going? Was Christ's plans derailed? What John saw next in the book of Revelation was terrifying. John tells us in Revelation 1.17, it was so terrifying, it called, caused him to fall to the ground like a dead man. What did he see? He saw the glorified Christ appearing as ruler, judge, and executioner. John saw the Lord in all his glory as head of the church, ready to mete out righteous judgment, not on the world, but on the church. Christ's message to the truth through John was unequivocal. Repent. Over and over, Christ calls those wayward churches to repent and reform. To the church of Ephesus, he said, therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do not do the deed and do the deeds you did at first. Revelations 2.5. Similar message to the church of Pergamum. Therefore, repent or else I am coming to you quickly and I'll make war against them with the sword, sword of my mouth. 2.16. The church of Thyatira of the severe judgment that awaited unless they repent. He charged the church at Sardis to remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent in 3.3. And he gave his final warning to the church of Laodicea, that lukewarm church, reminding them that those whom I love, I reprove in discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Those were not casual, dispassionate warnings. Each call to repentance was accompanied by a devastating consequence that awaited if a church failed to reform. What John saw and heard was the fulfillment of Peter's word decades earlier in his first epistle. We read it earlier this morning. For it is time for the judgment to begin with the household of God. 1 Peter 4.17 Like Paul, Peter knew that many looming spiritual dangers that threaten the church even from within. He also knew that churches would in some cases succumb to temptations, false doctrines, the lure of the world, or the assaults of the evil one. Peter called his readers to persevere under persecution, which he saw in, in part as God's judgment against the unfaithful church. What John saw the Lord as what John saw, 
the Lord as the righteous judge coming to call his churches to repent of unfaithfulness to him. Most people who go to church believe it's a safe place. Perhaps the safest place when it comes to threats of judgment from the Lord. It's almost like climbing aboard the ark. Once you're inside safely, you're untouchable. But that's not true. Frankly, it's a foolish and dangerous notion. Just because you're in a church or something you call a church where Jesus' name is invoked and songs are sung about him does not mean you're safe against the threats from God. In the opening chapters of Revelation, the Lord makes some very strong and direct threats against the churches. A church is no safer than the world in that regard, and its transgressions often demand a swifter judgment. While the Lord repeatedly called for Israel to repent and return to a right relationship with him, the early chapters of Revelation are the only place he employs similar language when dealing with the sins and failures of his churches. It makes us uncomfortable to think about God calling his church to repent and reform and threatening them with judgment if they don't. But it's critically important that we heed the warnings Christ delivered to us through the pen of John in Revelation. The issues that corrupted churches in the first century are the same threats facing the church today. Idolatry, sexual immorality, compromise with the world as, and its pagan culture, spiritual deadness, and hypocrisy. Over the intervening centuries, the church has not outgrown these familiar pitfalls. Nor has God lowered or softened his righteous standard. Regardless of when and where it exists, he demands a pure church. That was his message to the churches in Revelation. Roughly 2,000 years later, Christ is still calling his churches to repent and warning about its dire consequences if they don't. If you want to learn what we need to do, two weeks from today, I will continue part two. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for revealing us to us and warning us of what was to come and is to come and what we must do as a faithful church. I am glad to be in a church that preaches the sound doctrine of your word. And we pray that all churches will come to reform and follow your word. We need to take your words at heart, that you love your church, but you want a pure church, a holy church, because for you, you are holy, and we must be holy. Let us do in all our works and deeds, be holy as you are, and do everything to the glory of you in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.